Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 104, Inside Job, on the development of MRI and chemical aspects of MRI. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. By the 1970s, nuclear magnetic resonance had become a standard analytical tool in the chemist's toolbox, giving quality spectra to help confirm a molecular structure. Let's review exactly how nuclear magnetic resonance works because our chemical history now begins to affect medicine, a theme of chemistry overlapping other fields I have tried to demonstrate in many ways throughout this series. We go back to our subatomic particles and note that they have a property which we call spin, which makes the particle act something like a spinning top. Now, among those particles, electrons have spin, but they are, as best as we can tell, point-like particles, and how a point can spin is beyond me. Subatomic particles definitely have angular momentum, which something spinning in the macroscopic world also has, but I leave the question of what really is that property we call spin aside, and merely note that it exists. Wolfgang Pauli, the German physicist of the early to mid-20th century, talked about electron spin as, quote, two-valuedness not describably classically, unquote. That is, it has two values we label as up and down, or maybe clockwise and counterclockwise, if we use the macroscopic spin analogy, or mathematically positive one-half and negative one-half. Protons and neutrons in the nucleus also have a spin of one-half. Then you can sum up all the particles spin in a nucleus and get a total spin value for the nucleus. It's really a vector sum which includes direction. So there is a magnitude of the spin and a direction of the spin, and you need to include both parts when you add. If you move the nucleus, which has a positive electric charge in a circle, it generates a magnetic field and has a magnetic moment. You can add up vector-wise all these magnetic moments of all the nuclei, and get a net magnetization of the material you study. Now, for NMR, you apply an external magnetic field to your sample, and all the quantum energy levels of the nuclei are no longer equivalent. They split up into different levels. The larger the field you apply, the bigger the splitting of levels, but the difference between them is still pretty small. For the NMR experiment, you take your sample, generally a liquid or something dissolved in a liquid, and put it into a glass tube. You take the tube and put the tube of sample inside a resonator, an electronic coil. 
the coil sits inside a really powerful magnet. The magnet makes the nuclei with odd numbers of protons and neutrons with their own magnetic moment align along the external magnetic field. The electronic coil pulses radio frequency electric current onto the sample. The pulsed current electromagnetically rotates the nuclei briefly along the field, and then the coil detects the energy the nuclei release as they rotate back to their regular alignments. It's really a weak amount of energy, so you need to run the pulses multiple times to get a decent signal. Then you convert the signal by the fast Fourier transform algorithm we spoke of already into a spectrum. The final spectrum shows the different frequencies the nuclei responded at. Nuclei in different positions in a molecule respond at different frequencies so you can interpret what the molecular structure is like. Researchers immediately tried to use this technique to measure other macroscopic properties. One early example was engineering professor Jay Singer, who was able to measure blood flow in his own arm via nuclear magnetic resonance in 1959. Around the same time, from 1954 to 1968, Swedish researcher Erik Odeblad also studied NMR on human tissues and mucus. Raymond Damadian, an American physician around 1970, was interested in potassium ions inside cells and found that the time for the ions to return to their regular positions in an NMR was shorter inside cells than in plain solutions. This meant that potassium wasn't freely wandering around cellular interiors, but attached to negative ions. Then Demadian also tested proton NMR inside cells versus plain distilled water, and also showed that the water is organized inside cells, probably adsorbed onto the surfaces of large molecules, rather than floating freely. In a 1971 paper he published in the journal Science called Tumor Detection by Nuclear Magnetic Resonance, he showed that water rotating back to its regular position took longer than expected because the cancer cells were more disordered inside than normal, and because they had high potassium levels. The extra potassium ions break up the organization of the cell. Thus, he could use NMR to detect cancerous tumors. His paper used rat cancers. He patented the idea by 1974, including the idea of scanning via NMR a body to find tumors, but gave no way to show images of the scan. The basic result, though, is that tumors have a different property in NMR than normal tissue. And you can detect this difference. In September 1971, one of the postdoctoral researchers in Demadian's lab 
took some of these rats to a company with NMR machines, and Paul Lauterbur, a chemist, happened to be there and saw the process. He believed, after some consideration, that you could make a large set of magnetic fields rotating in three dimensions to locate tumors in 3D space. After some back calculations, something like X-ray crystallographers do to place atoms in a molecule, or surface scientists use electron diffraction to back calculate the atom structure at a surface. After consulting with mathematicians and computer scientists, one guy eventually found a paper describing such a mathematical procedure. So Lauterbur felt more sure of this. He began working on a real apparatus to do this, and chose as a test subject samples of regular water in glass capillary tubes, immersed in heavy water, D2O filled tubes. Recall that heavy water uses hydrogen atoms containing an extra neutron in the nucleus, so that its nuclear spin would be different. The heavy water would remove the magnetic distortions that the air would cause. For the back calculations, the computer Lauterbur used was so limited he had to store intermediate results from his calculations on punch cards and run multiple passes of calculations. The image was a typewriter printout of a twenty by twenty array of numbers. In the image, you can see a darker central island, the regular water, surrounded by a lighter colored area, the heavy water. The first draft of this manuscript on this process, he sent to the famous journal Nature, which rejected it because the method was so odd and the image was lousy. After revising the paper to include discussion of cancer detection, it was accepted and published in March 1973 under the title "Image Formation by Induced Local Interactions." Examples employing nuclear magnetic resonance. He was able to see in his images differences between heavy water and regular water. He coined a word for his method, zeugmatography, from Greek zeugma, joining, because you join the big magnetic field to the pulsed radio frequency field to get an image. The word is no longer used, though. Among other samples he tested were a clam his daughter found on Long Island Sound, and some green peppers. Meanwhile, Englishman Peter Mansfield at the University of Nottingham, where I spent a year from 1985 to 86. Was also interested in NMR of solid materials, and spent much time in the late 1960s and early 1970s on analysis of the times it took for molecules to rotate back to normal after being zapped with an RF pulse. He also gravitated towards examining liquids in NMR. Early in the summer of 1972. He was chatting in a tea room with other researchers, and realized that the gradients of magnetic fields could lead to spatial resolution of materials, perhaps even doing a version of X-ray crystallography, but with NMR. 
Working on this, he determined that you needed more magnetic field gradients than he could get, but he was able to see different layers of camphor via his special NMR method by August 1973. But just at that time, Mansfield read Lauterbur's paper in Nature and understood that Lauterbur was on to a similar result to what Mansfield wanted. And like in other cases we've discussed before, a scientific and technological race began between Lauterbur and Mansfield to get biological images under NMR with spatial resolution. Mansfield's method was to use a gradient in the field to select different planes or slices in the volume studied. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Mansfield focused entirely on liquid samples and searched for easy-to-get biological items with multiple internal parts. He used his home garden and plucked lupins, also called bluebonnet flowers, and used their stems. He went to the vegetable market and used okra pods and published papers on this through the mid-1970s. This was all cute and clever, but not enough to gain interest from the government funding group, the SRC, or Science Research Council. Then he got his graduate student, Andrew Maudsley, to put his finger into the machine, and they published a paper of the first live human body part in 1977. The scan took 23 minutes, and you can distinguish the bone marrow and tendons in the image. That caught the SRC's attention, and they granted Mansfield funding to build a human-sized scanner. Mansfield's research group got the instrument, built specially by Oxford Instruments, in late December 1977. Nottingham University recently opened a medical school, the Queen's Medical Center, which supplied human cadavers as initial test subjects. But what Mansfield really wanted was a live person inside the NMR scanner. Naturally, he climbed in himself and took an image of his own abdomen in April 1978. Note that nothing was known about safety inside such machines, and there was some controversy, and one researcher thought the scans would cause a heart attack. So Mansfield updated his will, and his wife was there as a witness to the full-body scan. Soon after, the group studied breast tumors, human wrists, and a lemon. But of course, Demadian got the first full-body scan on July 3rd, 1977, of a thorax of one of his slender graduate students, 
Larry Minkoff, published in a paper called NMR in Cancer, Part 16, Phonar Image of the Live Human Body. Phonar was the acronym for Field-Focused Nuclear Magnetic Resonance. The machine they built they called Indomitable. By the way, Demadian was involved with pseudoscience, even while doing real science and technology, for he was a creationist. So it's taken this far in the episode to get to just building these NMR scanners. And why MRI? Because early on, people seemed to get worried with the word nuclear. So that term was dropped. But MRI is most definitely a special form of nuclear magnetic resonance. One problem with the early MRI systems is that it was really difficult to tell the difference between different types of tissue. But researchers found that if you add some ions to your sample, like manganese plus 2, or copper plus 2, or chromium plus 3, or iron plus 3, these ions would bond with local protons in a helpful way, like this. The metal ion in a complex floats around in water inside your cells and makes a localized magnetic field that varies. This acts on the nearby water molecules and reduces the time for those water molecules to rotate back to their regular positions. These molecular complexes are called contrast agents because they increase the contrast between fluid areas in your body. It turns out that the best contrast agents seem to be those molecules containing the rare earth metallic ion gadolinium plus 3, for these complexes reduce the rotation time of the water the most. The first gadolinium contrast agent was patented in 1983, approved in 1988, and now they are used in somewhere around 40% of all MRI imaging tests and 60% of neuro MRI tests. Among the gadolinium-containing molecules used to improve the contrast in an MRI image is gadoteric acid, which is the ion contained, like magnesium or iron, in a nitrogen-containing organic ring. Similarly are gadobutrol, gadoteridol, and gadopiclinol. This last one has quite an array of organic groups hanging off the central complexing ring. In fact, many of the gadolinium-containing contrast agents have the central ring and dangling organic groups. There are a few others, like gadamer-17, which are polymeric. That is, they contain multiple instances of the gadolinium encased in a nitrogen organic ring, all attached to polymers. In terms of toxicity, free gadolinium plus 3 ion can be toxic at 100 to 200 milligrams per kilogram of body weight, but when you put the gadolinium ion in a complex, the toxicity drops drastically. There are issues over the long term, however, in some patients 
and this is a current topic of research. As I mentioned, there are other ions used as contrast agents as well. Iron oxide contrast agents were mostly used in the 1990s and 2000s, but seem to have been discontinued. While I haven't talked yet of nanoparticles much, these iron contrast agents are super small particles of iron oxide suspended in a liquid, a mixture chemists call a colloid. A variation of these is a combination of iron plus platinum ions, which are coated in phospholipids, fatty molecules with two parts, a tail that dissolves in organic liquids, and a head that dissolves in water. They are integral parts of cell membranes. The iron particles themselves, depending on the drug, range from under 50 nanometers in diameter. Up to over one micrometer in diameter. Another metallic ion in some contrast agents is manganese plus two, encased in an organic nitrogen ring system similar to gadolinium. An example is mangafotapir, which has two phosphate groups attached to the organic ring system. There is one more relatively new method for increasing contrast. In an MRI image, the direct detection agent, because proton NMR can be rather insensitive, scientists are trying to detect other nuclei via MRI. Typical experiments now use carbon thirteen, fluorine nineteen, sodium twenty-three, and phosphorus thirty-one, which you will note. Are isotopes of elements all found in living creatures except for fluorine? For example, among the fluorinated drugs are hexafluorobenzene, a benzene ring with all six hydrogens replaced by six fluorine atoms, perfluoro-fifteen-crown-five-ether, which is a ring of carbons and oxygens, but all the capping hydrogens are replaced by fluorines. And the almost snowflake-shaped molecule named Perfecta, which also has many capping fluorines. Using such direct detection agents together with a typical proton MRI scan can reveal so-called hot spots where fluorine particles congregate. In any case, we have seen tremendous improvement in nuclear magnetic resonance imaging. Since the first commercial setups produced in 1980, and the first mobile MRI unit in 1985. In our next episode, we explore that often ignored aspect of doing chemistry research in early laboratories: safety. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.